Well, um, this is going to be kind of a weird sermon, just so you know. Uh, and so I've been trying to figure out how to explain to you why I'm going to preach this. Uh, and it basically comes down to Matt, and it's all his fault. Because uh, last week we were talking, uh, and he was uh, asking me how my week was and, and how things are going. And I don't know if you know, but I'm taking a class on philosophy, working away at, uh, eventually working on a doctrine in philosophy. And so I told him, hey, I, I'm really excited. I've, I finished my paper on, uh, you know, in, in philosophy. And he said, well, what, what was it on? And as soon as he said that, right away, he said, probably something I don't understand, right? And I was like, yeah, probably. <laughs> and uh, if you work with university students or anything like that, you know you have this all the time. You ask an engineer, what, what's your doctorate on? And they're like, kind of hard to explain. <laughs> um, and I realized uh, I'm kind of a nerd. I don't know if you realize this about me, but my wife knows this about me. There's a difference between a geek and a nerd, just so you know. A geek, <laughs> a geek has all the paraphernalia. So you can have a Harry Potter geek or a, a Star Trek geek or whatever. Or you can have a nerd, and a nerd actually knows about this stuff, right? Uh, so there's a difference between a geek and a nerd, and I, I consider myself to be kind of a theology nerd. I know a freakish amount of stuff about theology, and it really excites me in a way that doesn't excite normal people. Um, but as I was talking about, I thought, you know what, this would actually be, because I'm sure you don't want me to drag you through my whole 25-page uh, paper, but there are insights from what I studied that, that I think will be interesting to share. And so um, this won't be a, a standard, here's the passage, and, and let's look at the scriptures. This is going to be talking more about a really important person in our theological and historical heritage, which is St. Augustine of Hippo. He came from a place called Hippo. If we were less mature, we would all laugh at that, but we're more mature than that. Um, and uh, he's had a huge impact on myself personally, and he's had a huge impact on us in the West. So um, I, I post on Facebook, hey, I get to preach on Augustine, I'm su super excited. And my grandmother, who is uh, 93, I think, do you remember how old she is? Anyways, she's getting up there, and she's from a Dutch Reform background, and, and she came out of that to become Baptist, and she said, oh, just leave Augustine in the grave. Uh, that, was her, uh, that was her excitement about my sermon topic. And uh, honestly, that's typical of, of some people. You know, we don't need to study this person. And honestly, honest, Augustine is responsible for some bad things in church history. Uh, most Catholic doctrine goes back to Augustine, as well as a lot of other things in our um, Western intellect. So Augustine is very uh, influential in our theory of knowledge, in our theory of time, in our theory of anthropology, or what makes us human, in our theology of history. According to some, he's the first to write a modern history. Well, that's some, somewhat debatable. Uh, some call him the last ancient man and the first truly modern man. It's a transition between the classical and the modern era. Uh, and he did major work in converting the empire. The empire at his time, sure, a lot of the slaves and, and lower ranks of uh, um, layers of society were, were converted, but he worked at converting the intellectual um, empire. Uh, but there were negative things that he did as well. He was the first to say there is no salvation outside the church. Uh, he emphasized that we are saved through the sacraments and not necessarily through a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, he was, he, an implication of his thought was to downplay the need for holiness in the clergy, although certainly that wasn't his purpose. Uh, he emphasized the difference between the clergy and the laity, and he had a very negative view of sex, uh, which has led to all sorts of um, 
things in the Catholic Church and, and in, uh, in Protestant churches as well, we have uh, a view of sex that we're still kind of struggling to get a, a more healthy view on. So, should we listen to my grandmother and just let Augustine stay in the grave, so to speak? Well, he's also responsible for a lot of really positive things. He's also responsible for, or I should have mentioned also his thought, uh, was responsible for um, the theology behind the Crusades. Now, he, he wouldn't have advocated it, but his thoughts were used to, do, to legitimize the fusion of church and state that then uh, manifested itself in the Crusades. All this stuff is kind of Augustine's fault. But he was also um, did some very important work on the problem of pain, uh, the problem of, of a good God with evil in the world. He defined and defended the doctrine of original sin, that we are all sinners in need of grace, in need of salvation. We can't get saved by on our own, we can't, and we need grace. We can't, um, we can't get saved by our own works. Through his autobiography, which is um, uh, Confessions, um, he demonstrated the possibility and the necessity of a personal walk with God and how important it was to be personally converted through a decision. Uh, and he was directly responsible in a lot of ways for the Reformation. In fact, I don't, the clicker doesn't work, so I'm going to do this to you. Uh, vote, next one. It's the black one, and then the next one. B.B. Uh, Warfield says, The Reformation, inwardly considered, was the triumph of, August, of Augustine's doctrine of grace over his doctrine of the church. It's a triumph, triumph of his doctrine of grace over the doctrine of the church. Because a lot, again, of the ideas about we are saved through the church, in the church, by the sacraments, that comes from Augustine. But also the understanding that the reformers had that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, that also comes from Augustine. So there's this, this kind of tension that was resolved through, um, through the Reformation. So all that to say, let's look at Augustine. He's a really interesting guy. Um, and what I want to do to today, with the rest of the time here after that long introduction, I felt really self-conscious about this sermon, so I had to have a long introduction just to kind of legitimize what I'm doing. Um, we're basically going to have a time of a testimony, and it's not going to be my testimony, this is Augustine's testimony. It's kind of the original wretched sinner, I, I was once a sinner, then I was saved, it's kind of the original, um, uh, I don't know if I want to say Southern Baptist or Revival testimony. Uh, is Augustine telling about his story of how he met the Lord. And this book, The Confessions, continues to be one of the most important works in Western literature. Who here has read Confessions for something in education? So those two in the back. Where, where did you read Confessions? What, did you have to, what course did you have to read it for? Theology. Theology? Well, that doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> Theology. Okay. Well, it's also very important for anthropology and philosophy and other things. So let's pick it up in, uh, at the beginning here. Theology. Man, I was hoping for a better answer than that. Um, he starts off, You are a great Lord and highly to be praised. Great is your power and your wisdom is immeasurable. Man, a little piece of your creation, desires to praise you. A human being bearing his mortality with him, carrying with him the witness of his sin and the witness that you resist the proud. Nevertheless, to praise you is the desire of man. A little piece of your creation... You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Go ahead um, to that. So this is kind of the theme, the thesis of his book. You have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
And all throughout his story of how he came to faith, this is the theme that he keeps coming back to. Yes, I had success. Yes, I made discoveries. I learned about myself. I learned about the world. I was always restless until I came to rest in you. So then he talks, he starts his, this is his story of his life. And when I, you know, I approached it knowing this is a major serious work. And uh, when I saw where he started, I just laughed. Because he starts as, God, when I was an infant, and that's where he starts his story. I mean, you want to be thorough, right? And he talks about how when he was a baby, and uh, he needed milk, and so he cried and he demanded it. And if he couldn't get it, then he was jealous of his brothers that were getting milk and he wasn't, etc. like this. That didn't make sense, etc. and things like this. Um, and his purpose for doing this, and of course he's observing other kids more than himself because he doesn't remember. His purpose for this is theological, is he's trying to wrestle with um, what it means to be sinners from the very beginning. He said, I have personally watched and studied a jealous baby. Has anybody else seen a, a baby that gets jealous, really little? He's jealous of mommy's lap. He could not yet speak, and yet became pale with jealousy and bitterness as he glared at his brother, or sister, um, who was enjoying his mother. Who is unaware of this fact of experience? And how can we call it innocence when, colorful language here, when one child is enjoying milk from his mother, and another child is jealous of that to the point of wanting to hit them, when that milk is the only thing that is keeping his brother or sister alive. And so he's saying right from the very beginning, there's this, this thing of selfishness, of me first, of egoism. And he said, well, we smile at it in kids because for one thing, they're not very strong. They can't do anything about it. And for another thing, they're going to grow out of it. But is it really innocent for children to be this way? And he says, if I was conceived in iniquity and in sins, my mother nourished me in her womb in Psalm 57. I ask you, my God, where and when was your servant ever innocent? So he kind of, that's where he starts his testimony is I was born a sinner, just like everybody else. And then he goes through his young childhood. He had a really rough education. Uh, he was beaten and stuff like that, as they did in the day. And then he got to be a young adult and he was influenced by peer pressure and he did a lot of things he regrets. And then... He, does, he did something that um, everybody wonders why it's in there. But when you get why it's in there, you, you understand his book. Uh, in high school, when, I, um, when my world religions teacher talked about Christianity, he mentioned Augustine's pear tree. Who here has heard of Augustine's pear tree? A few. Okay. Again, the theology student's excellent. Um, and my teacher was like, I don't know why the pear tree's in there. He didn't say it quite like that, but... Uh, here's, here's the citation. I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire, so he, he went and he stole a bunch of pears from somebody. And he didn't need them. He was, a, he was a fairly well-off guy. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and of doing what was wrong. There was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit, though attractive neither in color nor in taste. You know those, those pears? There's some pears that just don't quite make the cut. To shake the fruit off the tree and carry off the pears, I and a gang of naughty adolescents set off late at night after we had continued our game in the streets. We carried off a large load of pears, but they were not for our feast, but merely to throw to the pigs. Even if we ate a few, nevertheless, our pleasure lay in doing what was not allowed. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart. You had pity on it when it was in the bottom 
of the abyss. Now let my heart tell you what I was seeking there when I became evil for no reason. I had no motive for my wickedness except wickedness itself. I was foul and I loved it. I loved the self-destruction. I loved my fall. Not the object for which I had fallen, but the fall itself. My depraved soul leapt down from your firmament to ruin. I was seeking not to gain anything by shameful means, but shame for its own sake. Do you guys catch the weight of what he's saying? And how the fact that there was nothing, they weren't even, they didn't taste good. They didn't even smell good. There's other things he did that he almost seems less ashamed of because at least there was something there that was attractive. But this becomes a window into his soul. And don't miss the symbolism that it's a garden. Anything else significant happened in the garden in the Bible? I forget right now, but maybe that's significant that something happened in a garden. So he's a young man. I should have mentioned that he was raised with a Christian mother and a non-Christian father um, in somewhat prominence, but he really showed a lot of um, promise through education, and so his parents paid for uh, a good education. Uh, he was going to make a good living as a teacher and uh, somewhat as a philosopher, but mostly understanding and teaching rhetoric. Uh, and so this is where he started getting educated. Uh, when he was about 18, he read a book um, by Cicero that uh, really encouraged him to pursue wisdom. And he said, The book changed my feelings. It altered my prayers, Lord, to be towards you yourself. It gave me different values and priorities. Suddenly every vain hope became empty to me, and I longed for the immortality of wisdom with an incredible ardor in my heart. You can just go to the next slide if you want, which is just black. That's perfect. Go back to the black one. Go back to the black one. <laughs> That's going to be distracting. Um, so at, at some point in his education, he comes upon this book of philosophy, and the philosopher just, there's a blank slide in between. Just go to the blank slide. Sorry. Um, he reads a book in philosophy. And the, the, the author, Cicero, is really just encouraging uh, the readers, seek wisdom, seek wisdom. This is not a Christian book. It's not a Christian philosopher. He's not encouraging him to, to seek truth in the Bible or anything. Just seek wisdom wherever it's found. And this starts a quest for him to seek truth, seek wisdom. And other things start to pale in comparison to just finding out what is true. So the first place he looks, because he's raised in a Christian home, is the Bible. Therefore, I decided to give attention to the Holy Scriptures to find out what they were. And this is what, what met me. Something neither open to the proud, nor laid bare to mere children. A text lowly to the beginner, but on further reading of mountainous difficulty and enveloped in mysteries. Some of this stuff you need to read. It's hard to understand just listening to it. But it was difficult, and it was difficult because it takes a certain humility. The, the high-minded philosophical stuff he was reading was written in elegant style. It was all these big, grand concepts. And you read the Bible, and it's two people in a, in a garden that make a mistake. And, you know, it just, it was requiring humility of him. And then at the same time, it's very difficult to understand the Bible. And so he goes on, My inflated conceit shunned the Bible's restraint, and my gaze never penetrated to its inwardness. Yet the Bible was composed in such a way that as beginners mature... Its meaning grows with them. I disdain to be a little beginner. Puffed up with pride, I considered myself a mature adult. So he figures he's, he's really too smart for the Bible. 
And he moves on to other things, eventually becoming interested by some of the dominant philosophies of his day, one of the main ones being Manichaeanism, which is now a dead idea in religion. But at the time, it was a very um, interesting idea that explained the presence of good and evil in the world. There's a good God, there's a bad God. If you can think of the yin-yang symbol of, uh, from the East, it's kind of that idea that there's a good God, there's a bad God, they're at war. So if there's any famines in the world, it's because of the bad God. There's, you know, the sun is shining and the grass is growing, that's because of the good God. And there's this whole philosophy that was built on Christianity, Persian influences, and other Eastern influences that really interested him for about nine years. And he leaves the Christian faith. Um, during this time, he gets a concubine. So my son is reading the Bible for himself. Um, and uh, a few months ago, he came to me and said, Dad, what's a concubine? And so I had to explain to my eight-year-old son what a concubine is. And that just... Part of, uh, part of reading the Bible uh, for yourself. It's an education all in itself sometimes. Um, but what we might call nowadays more like a girlfriend, uh, but he was more serious with her. There's kind of a difference between blonde and conjoint, conjoint in, our, in French, but anyways, he was more serious with her. And he says, She was not my partner in what is called lawful marriage. I had found her in my state of wandering desire and lack of prudence. Nevertheless, she was the only girl for me, and I was faithful to her. With her, I have learned by direct experience how wide a difference there is between the partnership of marriage entered into for the sake of having a family and the mutual consent of those whose love is a matter of physical sex, and for whom the thought of a child is contrary to their intention, even though, if offspring arrive, they compel their parents to love them. He said, we weren't trying to get a kid. In fact, we were trying not to have a kid. Um... But when the kids come, they kind of force you to love them anyways. Um, and as things happen, they did have a kid quite soon after. And so uh, by this time, Augustine is a young professor. He's making a good living. He's got a concubine, uh, and he's, he's now got a young son. And his mother is not happy with this because she's a very devout Christian, and she's weeping for him, and she's praying for him. And, um, and he knows this, and, and it breaks his heart, but at the same time, he's pursuing his own path. There's a really interesting uh, section here where his mother goes to their pastor and says, Pastor, go straighten up my son. He's got all these crazy ideas about Manichaeanism, and, and he's living with this girl. Go, go talk to him. You ever want to do that? And, uh, I've had people sometimes say that to me, and, uh, and I appreciate the, this pastor's response because I thought it was very wise. Um, okay, this guy was... Uh, well-trained in, in, in your books. Um, when, my wife, when my mother asked him to make time to talk with me and refute my errors and correct my evil doctrines and teach me good ones, he declined, wisely indeed as I later perceived. For he answered that I was still unready to learn because I was conceited about the novel excitements of that heresy and because, as she has informed him, I had already deserved disturb many untrained minds with trivial questions. Let him be where he is, he said. Only pray the Lord for him. By his reading, he will discover what an error and how vast an impiety it all is. So just, just let him be. He's on a journey. Pray for him. Pray for him a lot. But he's going to find out on his own. Remember earlier he had read Cicero. And he had this burning desire to find the truth. No matter what it is, no matter where it is, I'm going to find the truth. And that truth had led him away from Christianity. 
But this pastor said, just, just wait. You pray for him. This, this desire for the truth is going to lead him back. Um, but she kept begging him, and she kept crying, and she kept praying um, or uh, asking uh, this pastor, please talk to my son. Please help him. And finally, the pastor got frustrated at him. Matt, do you ever get frustrated with us? You never get frustrated at anything, do you? No, never. Okay. And, and her pastor said, go away from me. As you live, I, it cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. And he took, she took that as a word from God. The son of these many tears will not perish. And it turned out later on that she was right. So then it goes on, he, he moves from here to there and, and other places. He gets other uh, honors in teaching. He starts to write books. He loses some friends. He goes through um, some personal trials. Let me see where I am here. And moves on to the next phase. By this time, he's about 30. And some things happen to shake up his, his worldview. He's been uh, contented in Manichaeanism for a while. He's... He's become established as a teacher. But he finally meets one of the higher-ups in Manichaeanism, known to be the best teacher in Manichaeanism, a man named Faustus. Faustus. And he's had all these questions in the back of his mind that he's wanting to ask somebody, but every time he asks somebody, they say, well, ask Faustus when he comes. So he finally gets to sit down with Faustus, and he finds that Faustus is significantly less educated than he is, and he knows he's no help. He... Augustine is smarter than Faustus is, and Faustus doesn't have any good answers to this. He's got some slick rhetoric, but nothing to, to deal with the questions that Augustine has. And so Augustine leaves Manichaeanism and becomes a, a skeptic, basically a, um, a relativist. Nothing is true. There's no, there's no truth in the world. But he's not really happy here, and he, he's seeking for something else. And he ends up bumping into uh, Neoplatonism. Uh, you guys know who Plato is? Anybody? Socrates, Plato. Thank you, theology students in the back. Um, so th this idea, it's basically a Greek version of monotheism, that there is one God, and that has created everything. So that it is sort of an organizational structure similar to Christianity. Um, and so he's interested in, by this. At the same time, there are um, there's things going on on the home front that are causing other uh, difficulties. So he's had this concubine for about 11 years now, but she's a woman below his station, and he has nobility, and he can never marry her. And his mother, although she's a devout Christian, uh, she's also very culturally, she's part of her culture, and she wants her son to have an honorable marriage. And so um, her, his mother ends up following her to, uh, following Augustine to where he is in Milan, and, and they're together, and she sets up a marriage with a girl uh, who at that time was only 12, and he was 30. It's the times we're talking about, okay? But she is from nobility, he's from nobility, so this is how it's going to be. Um, and so Augustine goes on. Meanwhile, my sins multiplied. The woman with whom I habitually slept was torn away from my side because she was a hindrance to my marriage. My heart, which was deeply attached, was cut and wounded and left a trail of blood. She had returned to Africa, vowing she would never go with another man. She left me with the natural son I had by her. But I was unhappy, incapable of following a woman's example, and I'm impatient of delay. I was to get the girl I had proposed to only at the end of two years. 
As I was not a lover of marriage, but a slave of lust, I procured another woman, not, of course, his wife. By this liaison, the disease of my soul would be sustained and kept active, etc. It's hard to know where to cut him because he's just it's a long flowing thing. But So his mother compels him and he's got kind of this passive way of saying that my, my, uh, my girlfriend was taken from me. Obviously, he had some role to play in this. Um, and she goes back to Africa and he said, she was torn away from my side and my heart, which was deeply attached, was cut and wounded and left a trail of blood. He's aching for this woman uh, that he has shared his life with for over a decade. And so this is part of, of and then he's got this other, he's proposed to marry to this other girl, but he can't wait two years. So he finds somebody else to live, to sleep with for, in the meantime. And although that would have been fairly common practice at the time, he's starting to get kind of sick of himself. He's starting to see how much he lacks self-control. Now at this time, the, you know what, I will put up the slide here on, uh, with the picture. I mentioned he read Plato and um, this one, yeah. So the, the solution that Manichaeanism gave him was it gave him an answer to why there's evil in the world. That is the biggest problem if we believe in a good God. What, where does evil come from? And Manichaeanism seemed to have answers, but the deeper you dug, there were bigger problems with Manichaeanism. What Neoplatonism helped him understand was there is one good creator, God. He created beings of free will, and, and free will creatures have chosen evil. So that's how a good God can exist in a world where there's evil. He created beings. He created free will. Free will is good, isn't it? And through free will, we choose evil. If we didn't have free will, we couldn't love. Um, and that's why God created us that way. Um, of course, it's all so much more complicated than that, but this is just a summary. Um, and so he was being drawn by Plotinus, by uh, these followers of Plato, and by their, through their similarity of this sort of thinking to Christianity, he was being drawn closer and closer. In his quest for truth, God had him on a journey where he was coming closer and closer to, to, the, to Christianity. Um, and he's speaking here about... Uh, some of the things he read in the philosophy he was reading. He said, There I read, not of course in these words, but with entirely the same sense, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made. This is all completely compatible with Greek philosophy, in this, with Plotinus's philosophy. What was made in him is life, and the life was not the uh, the life was the light of men, etc. So, through this Greek philosophy, he was really seeing, you know what? John one is starting to make sense to me. I understand how Jesus can be the Son of God. And I realize I have more on the philosophy here than I really should share because I just wrote a paper on it. So I'm going to skim over a little bit. Um, but, Maybe I should just conclude that by saying, but at the end of this he says, but what I did not read in the philosophers was that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That the idea of, of God becoming flesh and living among us, this was not part of Plato's system, and so it had to be changed uh, to, to fit, but it brought him a lot closer than Manichaeanism had been. All right, so I think we are at my favorite part. Um, 
where he actually, this all comes to a head at one point, as he's in Milan. And by this time, he's got a bunch of other friends around him that are also teachers, that are also very academic, and they're all seeking truth together. And they often meet together to read from Plotinus, to read from Plato, to discuss theology, to read the Bible. He's uh, started a catechism with his church, uh, where he's studying the, the doctrines of the church. He's trying to understand it. Um, and he's kind of on this path. And yet, he's, he's not able to cross over the threshold into the church. He says, I was an unhappy young man, wretched as at the beginning of my adolescence, when I prayed to you for chastity and said, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. He said, I, I was praying to you, God, Give me self-control. Give me freedom from sexual temptation. But not quite yet. <laughs> maybe tomorrow after you know, we've had an, another fling. Maybe, maybe a little bit later. I was afraid that you might hear my prayer too quickly and that you might too rapidly heal me of the disease of lust, which I prefer to satisfy rather than suppress. So this is where he's at. And for him, it was really came down a lot to sex. And he had... He just had a hard time letting go of that for to enter into the kingdom of chastity and turning his heart over to the, to the Lord. So as uh, they're all sitting in uh, the, the, the crucial day, uh, him and his friends are all sitting around philosophizing and, and talking about uh, various things. And somebody comes in and reads a letter of somebody, not super educated, but one of their friends that had accepted the Lord and was just sharing how excited they were about having accepted Jesus as Savior. Never discount the power of testimony. Um, and while they heard this story, um, I'm going to have a hard time not cracking up because I find all this stuff so powerful. Um, he says, But while he was speaking, Lord, you turned my attention back to myself. You took me, as it were, from behind my back to, to in front of me. You set me before my face so I could see how vile I was. How twisted and filthy, covered in sores and ulcers. I looked and I was appalled. There was no way of escaping from myself. If I and you once again place me in front of myself, you thrust me before my own eyes so that I should discover my iniquity and hate it. I had known it but deceived myself, refused to admit it, and pushed it out of my mind. So he's just realizing, I'm a sinner. He continues, you, Lord, put pressure on me in my hidden depths with a severe mercy, yielding the devil whip of fear and shame, yet lest I should again succumb, and lest that tiny bond which still remains from between me and you should be broken, and once more regain strength and bind me even more firmly. Ingrained evil had more power over me than the un unaccustomed good. The nearer approached the moment of time when I would become different, the greater horror it struck me. But it did not thrust me back nor turn me away, but left me in a state of suspense. There's this, this war going on inside of him. He hates his sin. He hates himself. He wants what God is offering him, but he is just, he can't do it. He can't get across that threshold. And as they, as they continued to read, all of a sudden he jumped up and he said, and he, he has a, a footnote here, not exactly in these words. Um, I'm sure it wasn't nearly this eloquent. But he said, what is wrong with us? 
What is this that you have heard? Talking about this testimony they just read of this guy that got saved. Uneducated people are rising up and capturing heaven. Matthew eleven twelve, And we with our, our high culture without any heart see where we roll in the mud of flesh and blood. Is it because they are ahead of us that we are ashamed to follow? Do we feel no shame at making not even an attempt to follow? So remember how he turned away from scriptures because he was too proud. And then he realizes these people without education, they're just, they're just going in. They're getting saved ahead of us. Why are we held back by our pride and our feeling of, of sophistication? The tumult in my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with my burning struggle in which I was engaged until the matter could be settled. But one of his friends followed with him. But my madness with myself was part of the progress of recovering health. And in the agony of death, I was coming to life. I was aware how ill I was, but I was not yet aware of how soon, how well I was going to be. So I went out to the garden. Oh, he's in the garden again. Interesting. But, okay. He has a note here because he went out to the garden. He, he moved himself physically. But to reach the destination I was trying to go does not require ships or chariots or feet. It wasn't even necessary to go the distance I had come from the house to where I had been sitting. The one necessary condition to cross this threshold, to, be, to come into the kingdom of God, the one thing I needed to do, um, which meant not only going but at arriving there at once, was to have the will to go. All I had to do was really to desire to be saved and accept salvation, provided only that the will was strong and unqualified, not the turning and twisting first this way, then that of a half of a will half wounded, struggling with one part rising up and the other part falling down. He's trying to say, God, save me from my sin, but he's still holding on to his sin. Finally, in the agony of hesitation, I made many physical gestures of the kind men make that want to achieve something and lack the strength, either because they lack the actual limbs or because their limbs are fettered with chains or weak. I tore my hair, I struck my forehead, I intertwined my fingers, grabbed my knee. It's just trying to, God, I, I want you in my life, I just don't know how. I don't know how. And he's trying to let go of his sin, but it has such a hold on him. Um, and then again, his, his sin comes in, in front of his eyes, and he... Uh, And he just starts to weep. And so he says, I got up from beside Olypius, his friend, solitude seeming to me more appropriate for the business of weeping, and I moved further away. So he's a, good, he's a man. He doesn't want to weep beside his friend. <laughs> and uh, he, he can feel the tears coming. So he gets up, and he casts himself down in front of a pair, uh, under a certain fig tree and just lets the, the tears flow. Rivers stream from my eyes, a sacrifice acceptable to you. Psalm 50, 19, and, through, and though not in these words, yet in this sense, I repeated, How long, O Lord, how long, Lord, will you be angry to the uttermost? Do not be mindful of our old iniquities, for I felt my past to have a grip on me. It uttered wretched cries, How long, how long is it to be? Tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not an end to my impure life in this very hour? As I was saying this, and weeping in bigger, bitter agony, Suddenly, I heard a voice from a nearby house chanting as if a little boy or a little girl was singing, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. 
You coming to tell me something? No. Okay. So he's he's sobbing his 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 eyes out, and he hears a kid singing. Pick it up and read. Pick it up and read. And he's thinking, I don't know of any nursery rhymes or any games where people are singing this. And so again, he takes that as a word from God. And this is not good exegetical practice, but he goes to his Bible. He opens it up to the very first passage that, that it opens to, which just so happens to be Romans 13, 14 to 15. And it said, Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. He says, I neither wished nor needed to read any further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled, and he had peace. So then he put his finger in the book, and he went back to talk to his friend Olympus, and he shared a little bit what had just happened. And Olympus said, hey, is there something in there for me too? Because all his friends were kind of in the same anxiety. And the first verse they looked at was Romans 14.1, which is just under, that said, Receive the person who is weak in faith. And Olympus said, that one's for me. And so he got saved too. And of course, the story goes on, um, but the rest is boring. Compared to how exciting it was when he finally found the truth of the the statement that he came to um, begin his book with, that we were made for you, Father, or this, sorry, I'll read it here. Because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So I have a few conclusions or a few applications from this very powerful testimony. Um, first of all, this is an application that John Piper gave when he did a similar sermon on Augustine a few years back that I listened to. He said, learn to rejoice in pagan conversions. Rejoice in pagan conversions. When you see somebody that goes from reading, I don't know, um, should have prepared a better example, but people get converted before they get converted. Augustine took steps and he came closer and closer and closer to the truth. And we can rejoice when somebody comes closer and closer and closer to the truth. I have a student that I'm working with um, who was agnostic last, last year, a year and a half ago. And then... Um, maybe there's a God. And she told me uh, a few months ago, if it wasn't for your ministry, I wouldn't believe there's a God. But I believe there's a God. And I'm not going to share too many details, uh, but um, she's interested in Catholicism right now and going through the the Catholic doctrines. And of course, I've got some Protestant students in my Bible studies that are like, you can't do Catholicism, that's that's wrong and stuff. Uh, And of course, I'm Protestant, not Catholic. Uh, I, I agree with a lot of what they're saying, that, but she was an agnostic a year ago. Let's rejoice that she's going through Catholic catechism, um, etc. Rejoice in pagan conversions. I don't mean to say, open more, more uh, things at the end here than I meant to. Um, rejoice in pagan conversions, that's it. Um, praying mothers. Monica was faithful. For a decade and a half, praying for her son. And finally he came back. And she lived about four more months and then she died. And a lot of people have wondered, did she kind of feel like her mission in life 
was accomplished. Um, Augustine was the son of many tears, and he had a tremendous impact on the world. And all of his journey that she was praying for him before he finally becomes saved, that was all a huge part of what God had for him in his future. So don't give up. God, there's always time for the prodigal to come home. Um, is there a restlessness in you? Have you discovered the truth of the statement that we are restless until we rest in him? And do you need to hear the words of Paul to, make, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh? Is it time to rededicate our lives to the Lord, whatever that might mean for you? Let's close our time in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for Augustine, for the tremendous impact he's had on my life and on our lives, uh, whether we know it or not. And I pray, Lord, that um, we would find rest in you. You are our peace, Lord. May we find rest in you today through Jesus Christ. Amen.